American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Richard Marks sucks. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of. American Timelines. I'm Amy. And I'm Fritz Keebler. Fritz Keebler? Fritz Keebler. I'm a fat guy with a beard and a comb over and a pipe. All right. I can picture Fritz Keebler. Fritz Keebler, y'all. Overweight and sweaty. Okay. Yeah. All right. And this is... That's how we do it. The podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic things from years gone by, and we do it year by year, and... Tonight we are. Did that murder happen while Jim oh, Belushi not, was? No, we're not. Remember, we're getting we're had a new show called point. According to Jim. We got to get to the point. Remember, or did that alien abduction happen at the same time as Mookie Wilson hit a double? All right, what we'll year tell you are we talking about lines. tonight? We're finishing up 1976. That's right. The year I was born. So we're going to start getting into stuff I remember pretty soon. All right. What's uh, the first item up for So bit? we left off, if you remember last episode, we left off. My name is Joe, by the way. It's not Fritz yeah. Keebler. See, I fooled you. I keep fooling the listeners, and that's why they keep listening, because they're like, is it, is it Joe, or nobody, is it Fritz Keebler, or is it doing that. Milky Shippentack? Okay. Shenacknack? Uh, nope, it's Joe. Ha ha, fooled you. We left off, if you remember, uh, 1976 was a big deal because uh, it was the bicentennial yes. uh, year. July 4th is where we left off. July 4th, 1976 was a big deal. My mom was trying to give birth to me because she thought she'd get prizes mm-hmm. uh, to have a magical July 4th, 1976 baby. Um, so here are some things that happened on uh, the bicentennial. Okay. Uh, Japan donated 53 bonsai, tri- bonsai trees to the U.S. for its bicentennial, including a white pine that had been tended daily since 1625. Holy shit. And that bonsai, that white pine survived the Hiroshima atomic blast. Oh, my God. Wait a minute. That's I call bullshit. Okay, go ahead. Call bullshit, and I'll prove it. So you're saying... During the atomic blast, yeah, somebody came every day. No, before, through, before no, no. and after that, way before, like so six, the year sixteen twenty-five. So I'm saying way before. Yep. Somebody came every day, despite the fact there was a nuclear war. Like, there's no way right after the nuclear bomb that somebody came that same day to tend a tree. Well, its history was unknown until 2001 when two brothers showed up at the museum to check on their grandfather's tree in in the year 2001. The tree was donated by bonsai master Masaru Yamaki. Mm -hmm. It was part of a 53-specimen gift to the U.S. for its 1976 bicentennial. Little was known about the tree until March 8, 2001, when with no advance notice, these brothers visiting from Japan showed up at the museum... Shigeru, Shig, Shigeru Yamaki and his brother Akira filled in the blanks for museum officials, though they had never seen the tree before their visit and had only heard about it through family stories. 
News footage taken at the Yamaki Nursery after the blast shows the pines sitting unscathed in the background. Right. So if you look at that news right. footage, you see nothing but that tree survived. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But I, I don't think anybody tended it every day. Well, it's a, that's legend. According to Shiguru and Akira, they said they were told that by their grandfather. <laughs> those lying bastards. They could have given a better tree. Yep. Uh, what how, else? How dare they? Um, also, um, for the bicentennial, uh, George Washington was mm-hmm. promoted to six-star general. Oh, so no U.S. officer can ever outrank him now. Oh, that's pretty cool. They did that for the bicentennial. That's and, a pretty um, good idea. Yeah, a lot of people don't know this, but George Washington actually. So if he comes back, yeah, he actually came back to life that day if too. If he comes to back to life, people his. are gonna have to do whatever the fuck he says. Yeah, well, he he came back to life to accept the award, and then yeah. he went. He was like, ah, I'll just go back to being dead. Oh. And he was like, oh, by the way, my dentures were not wooden; they were ripped out of sleeves' mouths. Right. And then we all found out, oh, gosh, he's a terrible person. Uh, but that's... I mean, but I at least he didn't... At I least don't know he, if he dr- was a very terrible person. I mean, compared to everybody well, at, at that time... At least he didn't drug and rape anybody in the 70s. I mean, he he was a brilliant person and everything, you know? But yeah. I guess there's brilliant people that could be terrible, but... I, I mean, if you own humans and... I'm just saying at that time, everybody did. Yeah, but it doesn't make it okay. I know it doesn't. But you're, you're advocating. Not gonna, you're not. I'm. I'm. I know it doesn't. So I'm you're just, saying right now, if all of our neighbors started owning, I'm saying you have people. to. You have to judge somebody within the context of the time that they lived. Okay. So. So, so Bill not, Cosby I'm raped saying, and drugged everybody no, in the '70s when that was a popular thing. No. So it's no, cool. No. 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 It no, might no. be in the future. I mean, people might look back in the future and be like, "Oh, yeah, all right. not so bad." We're gonna move on okay. because we're not gonna see eye to eye. On we're this. not gonna see eye to eye, or no. ball to ball, or cheek to cheek. All right. Or ham to ham. What's next? July tenth, nineteen seventy-six. Mm-hmm. You were born. Starland Vocal Band took over the number one spot on the Billboard charts. Mm-hmm. You know what they sing? No. Sky. Oh, I was gonna say that. Night. Afternoon mm-hmm. delight. The title came from the happy hour menu at Clyde's Restaurant in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. That's so where, funny. Where, where Bill Danoff was eating with fellow band member Margot Chapman while his then wife, Taffy Danoff, was undergoing surgery for cervical Taffy cancer. Taffy Danoff? Yeah. And so uh, and so they decided just they're at it, they're eating at this restaurant. They just decided to have, have sex, even though his wife was in the hospital. And what? while they're having sex, they said, this is an afternoon delight. No, no. That is not what happened. No, he enjoyed writing the song and downplayed the somewhat controversial lyrics, saying, I didn't want to write an all-out sex song. I just wanted to write something that was fun and hinted at sex. It pretty much hints at sex. It does. They're having sex in the afternoon. Sky rockets in flight. Living in song. And if you look at look this up online, there's like like these hippie ladies yeah. and a guy singing, singing this it. song and you can just picture them having hippie threesomes but they're all fully clothed like there's no yeah. you know they wear turtlenecks and everything but they're in they're up for some they're up for afternoon some. sex having that's right yep and they don't they just don't seem like they're talking about sex like they think that it looks like they're talking about picking flowers and yeah. smelling them all right and then uh friday july 16th 1976 do you know who albert spaghetti is no. Spaghiari? I don't know how to pronounce it. Okay. Albert Spaghiari. So, 
on July 16th, 1976, he robbed a bank for $10 million uh, and was a, and he was arrested for it later. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but he's famous because... Uh, no, I'm not going to tell you exactly. I'm going to tell you in the story what he did. Um, okay. He he robbed a bank for ten million dollars with a group of guys. He had the, it was like a big crime syndicate. He had mm-hmm. all these guys. He hired all these men to do it, and they had to go into the sewers and 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 it took him two months to dig a tunnel from a sewer to the vault where the vault was in okay. this bank. Okay. Um, Twenty six feet long. Uh, they had to dig underground. He told his men Ooh. not to, not to drink coffee or alcohol and get at least ten hours of sleep every shift to avoid any danger to the mission. They ended up opening four hundred safe deposit boxes and stole an estimated thirty to sixty million francs worth of money, securities, and valuables. Wow! It was the largest heist in the history of bank robberies to that date. In the history of all worldwide, all everywhere, according wow. to some accounts. Where, by, where did this happen? Uh, France. Okay. I think <laughs> is that where Franks are. Uh, I don't know. According to, according to some accounts, Spaghetti brought his men a meal, including wine and pate, and reportedly they sat down in the vault for and a picnic. It's definitely in France. For a picnic lunch, yeah. They're eating a yeah. meal of wine and yeah, pate. Yeah, bank robbers eat wine, so yeah. yeah. Uh, after, um, they sat down in the vault for a picnic lunch after welding the vault door shut from the inside. So anyway, he got caught and arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's the crazy part. that The bank robbery is not the crazy part. During his case hearings... Mm-hmm. Spaghiari devised an escape plan. He made a fictitious document which he claimed as evidence in court. Okay. He made the document coded so it had to be deciphered by the judge. So while Judge Richard Boaziz mm-hmm. was distracted by the document, Spaghiari, Spaghiari jumped out of a window, landing safely on a parked car, and escaped on a waiting motorcycle oh my out God. of the courtroom. Some reports claim that the owner of the car later received a $5,000 franc check in the mail for the damage to his roof. Spaghiari remained free for the rest of his life. Oh, you're kidding. Reportedly, Holy he went. Crap. He underwent plastic surgery and spent most, uh, probably most of the rest of his life in Argentina. But some people have said that he uh, secretly came to France a few times to visit his the mother of his uh, visit his mother or his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not sure which, but um, and and he also. While he was missing and they couldn't find him, he published a book. No way. And he was interviewed uh, for a TV show uh, called Apostrophes. And that was reportedly recorded in Milan. Um, And then he was said to have died under mysterious circumstances. But no, we don't know where he died? Or No, the press reported that his body was found by his mother in front of her home on June 10th, 1989, having been carried back to France by unknown friends. Remains so they left of, a dead body. Remains of the loot from minute. the heist. Wait have a never minute. Been You're going to have to. I'm going to need you to back up. Back up. Back up that ass. Back, back up. that ass up. So friends took his dead body and left it outside the doorstep of his mom's house. Yep. Is that what you said? Yeah, it was carried back there to and France just, by unknown like, friends. They just rang the doorbell and ran, or it something. It's probably a weekend at Bernie's type situation. They probably just leaned him yeah. up against the, the knocked and then ran. Because they're unknown friends. The living fuck. Well, how else are you going to do it if he escaped from court, on a, jumping out of a window? So they did motorcycle? recover his body, though. They know, like. They know he's dead. They know he's dead. Okay. Yep. According to his that's mom. pretty yep. sweet. That would that's be a pretty good, cool, right? That's like a movie. It, prob- it probably is a movie. Yeah, it's got to be. If I looked hard, it'd probably be a movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michael Douglas probably plays the guy. 
Well, that's a pretty good story. Yeah, you like that? Boom, you didn't know that happened. All right, what else? Tuesday, July 20th, 1976. Mm-hmm. How about this one? Japanese gymnast Shun Fujimoto okay. represented Japan at the 1976 Summer Olympics where he won gold in the team competition. Okay. Okay. He achieved fame by continuing to compete in the team event right after breaking his knee during the floor exercise. Oh, what? He scored 9.5 on the pommel horse and 9.7 on the rings with a broken knee, dismounting from the rings from eight feet above (gasps) ground and keeping his balance after landing on his feet. He raised his arms in a perfect finish before collapsing in agony. Oh, my God. God. The dismount worsened his injury, dislocating his broken kneecap and tearing ligaments in his right leg. Jesus Christ. Doctors ordered him to withdraw from further competition or risk permanent disability. One doctor said, how he managed to do somersaults and twists and land without collapsing and screams is beyond my comprehension. Can you imagine having your leg broken and jumping with that much force down onto a broken leg? Well, sometimes I have a cramp oh in my, my leg at God. night sometimes i get a charlie horse at night that would be bed. It's just excruciating as bad. i can't ima- i can't believe that well, it's just as bad as my well, i can't believe he I get stood up and was like perfect and then yep fujimoto said he he had not wanted to let down his team by revealing his injury uh his completing of the pommel horse i wonder rings. if that's on video anywhere events enabled the team to win gold i'm sure it is Defeating the team from the Soviet Union by a narrow margin. Later, when asked if he would do what he did again, he replied, fuck no. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> he said, no, I would not. Hell no. Uh, in 2017, he was inducted into the International Gymnastics Hall of Fame. Okay. That's interesting, right? That's yeah. an interesting story. This is like, so far, this is a good episode. Yeah, we might This is like, 45 is the best episode. Just yeah. like it's the best president. 45 is the best president. Okay. You know who the 45th president no. is? I'm really bad about that. Donald Trump. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's great. Why did you have to say that? Because you love Trump. You love Trump. You love Trump. Right. you got to admit he's attractive. Saturday, July 24th, 1976, the Manhattans take over the number one spot on the Billboard chart. Hmm. I don't know what they sing. It rhymes with, flish and pay should fly. What? Kiss and say goodbye. Uh, I don't know if I know that one. The song was written by a Manhattan bass what? singer... Winifred Blue Lovett, who also provided the spoken introduction, heard in the full-length version on the original recording. I know so many more of these than I did with the 80s, I think. But you don't know this one? But this one I can't. I might know it once you play it. This has got to be the saddest day of my life. I called you here today for a bit of bad news. I won't be able to see you anymore because of my obligations. This is pretty bad. This is how I'm going to break up with you if I ever break up with you. Oh, good. This is pretty bad. It's like a whole monologue. There's just so many things to say. I think that sucks. I think I looks like Coco Beware. Let's just kiss and say goodbye. That's probably one of those songs that some people would be like, I can't believe you said that was bad. Yeah, there's people, people my that love that. Like, oh, this yeah. is me and Charlie's song. Oh, yeah. We're going to sing this together. Anyway, like I said, the guy who was speaking at the beginning, he wrote it. Um, uh, the lyrics and the melody came to him one night. Okay. And, and uh, 
As he later recalled, he got up about three in the morning and jotted down the things he wanted to say, and he put them he put them on a tape recorder and a little piano, and that's when he wrote it in the middle of the night. It sounds like it was written in the middle of the night, doesn't it? Yeah, it's pretty um, bad. Can we move on? Yeah. All right. Yeah, jeez, wow, somebody's mad about that. Sunday, August 1st, 1976, Canada becomes the only host nation in history of Olympics to not win a gold medal in their own Summer Olympic Games. Oh, poor Canada. Poor Canada. That's embarrassing. And then Saturday, August 7th, 1976, Elton John and Kiki D cheer Don't everybody up. Don't go breaking my heart. Yep. I couldn't if I tried. Don't go breaking my Don't go breaking my I won't go break in I love that song. So John, uh, Elton John and Bernie Toppin wrote this. Okay. Under the pseudonyms Ann Orson and Carte Blanche. <laughs> All right. Uh, and they originally intended to record the song with Dusty Springfield. Okay. But they withdrew their offer uh, because uh, Sue Cameron, who was Dusty Springfield's partner, later said this was because she was too ill at the time. Oh. And like rap ill, like you be illin'. Like, no, I, that's not what they're saying. License to ill, I think that's, is what they No, mean. that's not what they're saying at all. Saturday, August 22nd, 1976. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the 42-year-old headmaster of the Yambuku Mission School. It was, where's returned that located? In, uh, is it Japan again? No, this is in um, uh, Zaire. Okay. Okay. Uh, he returned from a two-week driving excursion to northern Zaire near the Ebola River. Oh, Al- boy. Along the route, he purchased antelope and smoked monkey meat. Yeah. And he ended up with chills and a fever. Oh, the birth of the Ebola and was, virus? Yeah, and was treated for oh malaria with God. injections of different chemicals and medicine and... His fever diminished initially, but after one week returned with severe headaches, muscle pain, nausea, abdominal complaints, and intestinal bleeding. He died on September 6th with a uh, a hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic syndrome of the unknown cause. Jeez, the Ebola the virus is named after a nearby river, Ebola, where the first victim was identified in 1976. Oh, my God. I didn't know it was around that long. Ebola. Wouldn't it suck to have Ebola? Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to use that as my um, next time I want to call off work. What's worse? I'm going to e- tell him I got Ebola. Ebola or a broken or knee from or gymnastics. Or SARS. Remember SARS? SARS. I think I still have SARS. Yeah. It's All weird right. that they that they would sing Ebola. That is weird. With the <laughs> it's kind of, it's advertise kind of a that celebration thing. of it. Yeah. Like, um. Saturday, September 4th, 1976. Yeah. The Bee Gees take over the number one spot on the Billboard chart uh, after eating monkey meat. Is it night fever, night fever? Nope. Is it how deep is your love? How deep is your love? Nope. Is it ah, 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 staying alive? Nope. Is it shadow dancing? Nope. Jive talking? Nope. Uh, tragedy. Nope. Jeez, that's the entire Bee Gees album. Well, this one was recorded with Barry Gibb providing lead vocals in falsetto. Well, this <laughs> does not narrow it down. Well, he had developed his falsetto into it to an incredible degree in the ten months since the the release of Baby As You Turn Away. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't staying alive. And this is the first time he sang a full song 
completely in falsetto, I guess. Oh, is it? Girl, I tell you every way I see you growing every day. I nope. never really looked before. But now you take my breath away. No. How deep is your love? Oh, I already, I already asked him that one. I don't know. What is it? You should be dancing. You should be dancing. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I can't believe that's the you, only one I think I didn't mention. Yeah, and if you look this one up, every time, everywhere on YouTube, you know, they're playing it live somewhere. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about the whole falsetto. Like, who came up with the idea to sing a whole song oh, in falsetto? falsetto? Like, I thought that yeah. sounded good. And he's like, he's like... He's like working his ass. He's like all sweaty. Yeah, and he's like shaking his head really hard, like really, really but he's singing, singing his falsetto. falsetto really hard. This is great. I'm really a great artist. Yeah, and but it's I ridiculous. love the Bee Gees. It's a total joke. I love them. Yeah, I mean, I guess it. They'll always be famous, and they were all. They were in. The, they were Superman villains. But it's funny because, like Andy Gibb and Barry Gibb were good pretty good looking and then you you got robin gibb and he looks like somebody hit him in the head with a shovel well i was gonna say he did get hit in the head with a shovel that's how he got like that he looked just like the other ones yeah right and they were like we can't have three so hit him with a shovel hit him with a shovel he hit like, him with a shovel like gargamel well if he would have grown a beard it would look better yeah he didn't have a beard that's the problem Could probably be. i had gibb a didn't either though. Did i ever tell you that we had a bg's drum set growing up no that's pretty sweet that yeah, was a bg's drum set and it, Too bad none of the, I don't think any yeah. of the Bee Gees played the drums. It stayed at my grandma's house. I think they all just sang. It was black and white. It was black and had the Bee Gees picture on it. On oh, the, I'm sure it the, stayed at your base. grandma's house. Yeah, because my mom was like, hey, I'm bringing that yeah, shit on. No home. shit. We love that Bee Gees drum set. All oh, right. She still has What it. else? Thursday, September 9th, 1976, VHS was released. What? VHS tapes. Yeah, just that they were, made, were released. And they eventually won the war with Betamax tapes, although most agree it was an inferior product. And they lost the war with uh, Blu-rays and DVDs. Yeah, eventually. Did you know that Universal Studios sued Sony and its distributors in 1976, alleging that because Sony was manufacturing a device, Betamax, that could be used for copyright infringement, they were thus liable for any infringement committed by its purchasers. Oh, es- man. Essentially trying to kill videotape recording. Yeah, that that would have been a big one but if they would have won that. Courts ruled that home taping was fair use. Just like me playing yes. 12, so- 12 seconds of a song is fair That's use. Right. Saturday, September 11, 1976, KC and the Sunshine Band. Oh, is it shake, 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 yep. shake your booty? That's a good one. Yep. Uh, this song was met with a degree of controversy since the lyrics were interpreted or likely speculated by many as having sexual connotations. No, he's dancing. You shake your booty. You don't shake your booty when you're shake, shake, shake. Doing dang it, it. Dang it, do. You kind of when you, that's dancing. But now, but it's funny that that was controversial then. But now you can just you can just say lyrics about sucking somebody off. Oh or my whatever, god, I know. Or you can twerk right in front of somebody's face. It's horrible. Yeah. Our poor children are scarred for life. Well, you know, it's the times we live in. Um. Anyway. Uh, shake, 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 shake your booty holds the record for being the only number one song title with a word repeated more than three times in it. <laughs> so the song is called Shake, 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 Shake Your Booty. It's, it's not just yeah. called Shake It's called booty. Shake, 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 or Shake, parentheses, Shake, 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 close parentheses, Shake Your Booty. It is? Yep. I never and, realized uh, that. Uh, the chorus consists of the title expression with the word shake appearing eight times. 
Yeah, they say shake a lot. And then Saturday, September 18th, 1976, there's no more shaking because Wild Cherry takes over the number one spot on the Billboard charts. I do not know. Play that funky music. That's a great song. Uh, Yeah, it is. Lay down and boogie and play play that that funky funky music music till you die. die. Uh, Rob Parisi, the lead vocals and guitar, was raised in the steel mill town of Mingo Junction, Ohio. He graduated from Mingo High School in 1968 and formed the band Wild Cherry in 1970 in Steubenville, Ohio, home of Sarah Carlson Stocker. Okay. The band's name Wild Cherry was taken from a box of cough drops. All right. And did you know that? Did you know that Vanilla Ice covered this song? Yes. You did, and that was that was supposed to be his A side. Oh, really? To Ice Ice Baby was just a B-side. But, uh, everybody for liked reason, Ice they, Ice Baby? I guess, yeah. Stop, collaborate, and listen. Vanilla Ice so sucks bad. really bad. He's terrible. Yeah. Sunday, September 26, 1976. Mm-hmm. The, the fifth most popular TV show yeah. of 76 was called The Big Event. Do you remember this? No. Remember hearing anything about this? I do not. It was a huge, gigantic failure. Um... So NBC came up with this big, crazy thing, mm-hmm. and uh, it was called The Big Event, and it was supposed to be a new weekly series of what the network hoped would be super special attractions. Is it like Battle of the Network Stars or kind, something? No, it's kind of weird. It was structured around three New York parties, and parts of the festivi- festivities were scheduled to be performed outdoors, and their elaborate plans uh, were ruined when it was raining really hard. Uh, and so with... It raining out there on all these parties, that made it uh, embarrassing and pathetic, and it, even more so than it already was because um, these weren't like genuine events, but a series of tributes to sports, theater, and film that had been arranged and paid for by the network itself. Uh, what? And and the it really just became a mess, except for one part. The the part that was a, it was like supposed to be a tribute to sports, and, and Hal Linden is like walking through. It was kind of like a network stars type of thing, like you're saying. Hal Linden's hosting a bunch of stuff, and he's walking around Broadway yeah. and talking about, oh, this is great, the network's big event. And now, tribute to theater. And they had uh, Ethel Merman <laughs> singing uh, Broadway tunes, show yeah. tunes, with an umbrella because it was like pouring down rain. It was like yeah. horrible. But she was the only good part of it because she like went all out. Um, and they had like Dick Cavett, like, with Muhammad Ali, like weighing him and you and watched just it doing as... stuff. No, it's just according to the descriptions oh, I looked okay. up on. I watched some of it. Some of it's on YouTube. Oh. Um, but everybody thought it was stupid, except for Ethel Merman. She was having a blast and just singing like "Hello, everybody" and whatever she was singing. Yeah. Um, but like uh, at one point, uh, Lauren Bacall and Dustin Hoffman were on there, and they were both just miserable. Thought this was stupid. It was supposed to like be a tribute to movies and. Uh, at one point, Lauren Bacall says to Dustin Hoffman, um, uh, do you think that uh, Lawrence Olivier is the uh, greatest actor in the world? And Dustin Hoffman said, well, he probably has the greatest taste. That's probably why he isn't here tonight participating in this stupid thing. Mm. Dick Cavett at one point said, um, uh, I'm absolutely, he said this on the show, I'm absolutely humiliated. Uh, I think we should all just get a good night's sleep. <laughs> just oh, jeez. Yeah, everyone was just like, this is a f- big failure. But it was the fifth 
The fifth uh, time they did that? Fifth most popular show. Oh, I thought you were going to say that's that the fifth year, time they did Nielsen, that. And no. I was like, why would they, they did do a couple that five of them, times I guess. I think if they it did was so bad? A couple, but it was just a big stupid failure. It just looks stupid. Like, they don't, yeah. what are they doing? Yeah, that's, that's a great story. Shut up. <laughs> Look it up on YouTube. It's great. Yeah. Sunday, October 9th. You told me to start doing the top five shows. October 9th, 1976. Mm-hmm. Walter Murphy and the Big Apple Band take over the number one spot on the Billboard charts. I know you're not going to know this one. No. I've never heard of it. Not that. Do you know who Walter Murphy and the Big no, Apple Band? No, I've never I haven't heard of it. Fifth of Beethoven? Oh, yeah, it's like a disco version, right? Yep. I mean, I do know that. Yeah. Okay. That's, yes, a, I don't that's a great, that's funky. Yeah. Um, it's pretty funny, too. Yeah, and that they're playing on it like a fifth of Beethoven. It's like a like a liquor, mm-hmm. like you call it a fifth of liquor. Oh, right. It's supposed to be like, ah, we're drinking and playing Beethoven, making it cool. Um. Anyway, there's a bunch of stuff about that, but it's a basically just a yeah. disco version of classical Beethoven. classical disco. And then Saturday, October sixteenth, nineteen seventy six, Rick D's and his cast of idiots. Yeah. Take over the number one spot on the Billboard Rick chart. D's? Yeah, with Disco Duck. Oh God, remember I this? remember this. You do? Yes. If uh, I'm, Disco I want to say part Joy one. had the al- an album that was Disco Duck, and it had a whole album of. Yeah, so I didn't. Um, disco songs as sung by Donald Duck. No, they're not. They're not Donald. It's not Donald Duck. It's not. It's Disco Duck. It uh, sounds like Donald Duck, but it's not. Oh, um, I just it's, remember it. I mean, it's funny you say that because a misconception about it is that it's the, the duck voice is actually done by the guy who does Donald Duck. Mm. Uh, but uh, the Disney company maintained that the guy who did Donald Duck never contributed to the song. The voice of the duck was performed by Ken Pruitt, an acquaintance of D's, as stated on the label of the RSO release. What a dumb song to be t- on the top 40. For the live tour, the duck vocals were handled by Michael Chesney, another friend of Rick D's. This was a this was a novelty song. Just like that truck driving. Yeah. What was that one called? Convoy. Convoy. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, it sounds just like Donald Duck, so I can see why people would think that. Anyway, it's that so was a bad. stupid thing that happened, <laughs> and everyone who remembers that is probably... I want to say there was Disco Duck, and then there was another one that was either Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck that they did, like, an album. What was it? Yeah, it sounds, uh, that sounds kind of familiar, like there was something. There was another one, like yeah. Urban Cowboy or something <laughs> with Mickey Mouse. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think it was related to this, though. I think you're thinking of something else later. I think there was a Disco Duck Disney show later on or something. Okay. Anyway, Thursday, October 21st, the World Series was over when... Yeah. Wait, the uh, 1976 World Series matched the the defending champions Cincinnati Reds of the National League against the New York Yankees of the American League. Remember me talking about the big red machine last year? No, well, I this year out. the Reds uh, swept the series to repeat, avenging their 1939 and 1961 World Series losses to the Yankees in the process. Okay. The 76 Reds became and remain the only team to sweep an entire multi-tier postseason 
one of the crowning achievements of the franchise's big red machine era. All right. The Reds are also the last National League team to win back-to-back World Series. It also marked the second time that the Yankees were swept in a World Series. Okay. The Dodgers swept them in 63. You remember that World Series? No. You said you watched baseball once when you were sick. Can we move on? Wow. Angry. Saturday, October 23rd, 1976, the number one song on the Billboard chart became a song by Chicago. Hmm, I don't know which one. This one was written and sung by bass guitar player Peter Cetera. Okay. What you is it? You know what it is? Yeah. If You Leave Me Now. Oh, God, how does that go? I know it, but I can't think. Yes. Yes. This song was so pervasive. Yeah, there you go. Yep. The song was so pervasive on radio upon its release. Mm-hmm. It uh, was that reportedly those tuning in in New York could hear the song playing on four different radio stations, each with varying formats simultaneously. Oh, geez, because it was played so much. It was played all the time. How funny. And then Saturday, November 6th, 1976, the Steve Miller Band take over the number one spot. Oh, Steve Miller. What did they sing at that time? Not Abracadabra. We already had that, didn't we? Right. I think that was in the I, 80s. I don't know if we did that, but the lyrics and vocals have been labeled as having an everyman quality to them. Yeah. I guess that's all I'm of I'm not songs. a fan of Steve Miller. Um is it, uh, Locations mentioned in this song include the major cities of Phoenix, Arizona, Tacoma, Washington, yeah, oh, Philadelphia, yeah. Pennsylvania, Atlanta, yeah, Philadelphia, PA, yeah. Atlanta, Georgia, and Los Angeles. That's California. right. You know yeah. what song it is? Um, Keep on a rockin' rock me, me, baby. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Steve Miller. You want me to just move on or talk yep. about Steve Miller's personal life? I want you to move on. Saturday, November 13th, 1970. Oh, Steve Miller uh, was part of that heist, that bank heist. He was one of the guys. No. No, he wasn't. Saturday, November 13th, 1976, Rod Stewart takes over the number one spot on the billboard. Is it Maggie May? Or did we already do that? Um, No, did I skip your... When's your thing? Not till December. No, it's not. Is it, if you want my body, anything? It's not. Those are the only two songs I know. Okay, Tonight's the night. Oh. You know this one too, yeah. I think. Tonight's the night. It's gonna be all right. It's like the whole video is him playing a guitar, singing to some yep. woman in front of a fire. Yeah. I think. Um, I do know that one. He came up with the idea for this song because uh, he was inspired by a song called Today's the Day. Uh, and he all right. It to Tonight's the night. Uh, That's weird. Yeah. And oh, this was the vocal was recorded at Caribou Ranch. Remember we talked about Caribou Ranch, that place out in Colorado where all the stars would go and just do a oh, bunch yeah. of drugs and yep. smoke a bunch of weed. Oh, that's where it was recorded. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Anyway, November twenty seventh, nineteen seventy six. One of the best movie, best picture nominees. Mm-hmm movies came out network 
Oh, is that the, um, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take yep. it anymore. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I don't know if I've ever quote. seen this all the way through. A television network cynically exploits a deranged former anchor's ravings and revelations about the news media for its own profit. Directed by Sidney Lumet, starring Faye Dunaway, William Holden, and Peter Finch. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that all the way through. Uh, director Sidney Lumet and screenwriter Patty Chayefsky claimed that the film was not meant to be a satire, but a reflection of what was really happening. That's pretty scary. Uh, Sidney Lumet said the Mad as Hell speech was filmed in one and a half takes. Midway through the second take, Peter Finch abruptly stopped in exhaustion. Lumet was unaware of Finch's failing heart at the time, but in any case did not ask for a third take. What's oh, in the completed well. film is the second take of the first half of the speech and the second half from the first take. All right. Um, Beatrice Strait is only on screen for five minutes and two seconds. Hers was the briefest performance ever to win an Oscar. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there you go. And Sidney Lumet was furious to have lost Best Picture to Rocky. Oh. Because they're like, Rocky? What did yeah. you me? Um, of all things. Um, 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 if anything else matters, so I... But, Ned Ned Beatty once remarked that the actor should never turn down work. He worked a day on Network and got an Oscar nomination for it. He worked one day. I guess. Yep. Um, Faye Dunaway would later say this was the only film I ever did that didn't that you didn't touch the script because it was almost as if it were written in verse. Okay, so it was like a piece of art. She thought it was great. Yeah. Um, this is one of two films that has been awarded three acting Oscars, the other film being A Streetcar Named Desire in 1951. Oh, although, so like two supporting actors? Although both were nominated, neither film won the Best Picture Oscar that year. What do you mean three? Uh, there's three best actor, acting Oscars. Best actress, best, best actor, best actress, best supporting actor, best supporting actress. Yeah, so they won three out of four. Oh, they won all three of them. Yep. Okay. And then Friday, December 3rd, 1976, the number one grossing movie and the best picture that year was released, Rocky. Okay. Um, and everybody knows what Rocky is. All right. After producers Irvin Winkler and Robert Chartoff became interested in the script, they offered Sylvester Stallone an unprecedented $350,000 for the rights, but he refused to sell unless they agreed to allow him to star in the film. Yeah, that's smart. This, despite He the, wrote it, right? Yeah, well, listen, this he, he wouldn't take the $350,000 despite the fact that he only had $106 in the bank. He oh, had wow. no he had no car and he was trying to sell his dog because he couldn't afford to feed it. Oh my god. But those guys agreed to let him be in it. Uh but only on the condition that Stallone continued to work as a writer without a fee and that he work as an actor for scale. After Winkler and Chartoff purchased the film, they took it to United Artists who envisioned a budget of two million dollars, but that was on the basis of using an established star. Yeah. They wanted Robert Redford Ryan O'Neill. Robert Redford. Can you imagine or that? Or Burt Reynolds or James Caan. Burt Reynolds? Yeah. Can you imagine him? <laughs> Picture him in a big cowboy hat. It's a big cowboy hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Rocky. Chewing Rocky. Gum. It's a funny name. Yeah. <laughs> Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> Turd Ferguson. 
Yep. Uh, UA didn't want Stallone to star when Winkler and Chardoff told him that the only way they could get him to sell the screenplay was to agree to cast him. They cut the budget to $1 million. Oh, wow. And they had them sign agreements that if the film went over budget, they would be personally liable. The final cost of the film was $1.1 million. The $0.1 million came after Chardoff and Winkler mortgaged their houses so as to complete the project. Wow. So everybody was believing in it. Yep. In the film, the poster above the ring before Rocky fights Apollo shows Rocky wearing red shorts with a white stripe, and he actually wears white shorts with a red stripe. <laughs> oh, God. oh, man, that was a mistake. Who cares? Yeah, so um, so uh, Sylvester Stallone came up with the idea in a scene where Rocky actually points out the mistake himself in the movie. How about that? Oh, okay. Um, it's funny because you don't think Sylvester Stallone... Like, I don't picture him as being particularly smart, no. but he has to be to have written Rocky. I guess he wrote it with a big pen. Wow, really? A piece of paper, yeah. Like but, a, I mean, he, he, wrote had, it on a he napkin. has to be a pretty smart guy <laughs> to write that that story. Yeah. Well, you, th- you think of him, you really do, everyone thinks of him as the Rocky. Yeah, like a Rocky dumb... Rocky brain damn, a dumb yeah. guy, dumb poor guy, because yeah. he played that role so well. Mm-hmm. So he was basically Rocky in everything he did. Yeah, like he, he was. was I mean, even Rambo. And yeah, stuff. Rambo is Rocky. Mm-hmm. Judge Dredd is Rocky with a helmet on, going yeah. under the like mm-hmm. everything is just Rocky. Yeah. So this he did well. Um, it's funny. He's it's almost like he has a, he's had a stroke or something with. Well, his, he's deaf. He is. Yeah. But I mean, like one of the one side of his face sags. Yeah, it's his, well, all the punches he took as Rocky. No, I don't know why. Um, most of the scenes of Rocky jogging through Philadelphia were shot guerrilla style with no permits, no equipment, and no extras. Oh, wow. You ever hear that where they just go and just start shooting stuff? Um, I don't know. The shot where he runs past the the boat, for example, the crew were simply driving by the docks, and uh, John G. Avildsen saw the boat and thought it would make a good visual. So he had Stallone get out of the van and run along the, uh, oh. the quays while he filmed the side from the side door. That's pretty uh, cool. Similar story with him jogging through the food market. Um, nobody, all the people looking at him, don't mm-hmm. didn't know he was going to be in a. They were going to be in a movie and everything. You know, they were yeah. like, What they're looking at him and amused. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, that's okay. Cool. Pretty neat. Yep. You- okay, here's one other thing. During his audition, Carl Weathers was sparring with Sylvester Stallone. You know, he plays Apollo Creed. Oh, and, yeah. and he accidentally punched him on the chin. And Stallone told Weathers to calm down as it was only an audition. Weathers said if he was allowed to audition with a real actor, not a stand-in, he would be able to do a lot better. Oh, he thought he was a stand-in? And then the director smiled and told him that Stallone was a real actor and a writer. Weathers looked at Stallone thoughtfully for a moment and said, well, maybe he'll get better. Stallone immediately offered him the role. That sounds like a made-up story. It sounds like lore. Okay. Here's the big pen thing. He actually wrote the script for Rocky three. Ro- oh yeah, here he wrote the script for Rocky in three and a half days by hand with a big pen, and he wrote it on his wiener. No, no come on. Okay, but he did write three it in three and, and a half, half days. days. Yeah, is that pretty good? Yeah. Wow. Have you ever seen Rocky? I have never seen all the way through. No. Is it because you saw it? It was boring, but it's it's a real good feel good story. Like it's an yeah. underdog winning. And, yeah, I would like to see it. Yeah. I just never have. I don't know. Maybe, I remember when I was a kid, I think when I was young, because it was about sport, a yeah. sport. It was like it wasn't interesting. You, to you me. get really on the edge of your seat. And when I was a kid, I remember just being like, "You, when you're done watching that, you feel like you can." 
take on anything in the well, world. Maybe Henry like would you like go, to see yeah, it's like a real good underdog. Like yes, and mm-hmm. you're like, you want to jump up and down, go lift up a car, and yeah, bang a horse. Uh, Sunday, December fifth, nineteen seventy six. Yeah, Bound for Glory. Was another movie nominated for Best Picture that came out? You ever heard of that? For Glory. It's about the early life of Woody Guthrie as a vagabond folk singer. Directed by Hal Ashby. Starring David Carradine. Okay. Ronnie Cox and Melinda Dillon. I don't think I've ever seen that. Um, Singer Tim Buckley was cast as Woody Guthrie first, but he died before shooting took place. Oh, bummer. And then Hal Ashby offered the role to Jack Nicholson, but he died. And then he came back to life no, after. Now the, you're no. starting to make shit up. No, uh, he did offer to Jack Nicholson, but he turned it down, saying he didn't see himself as Woody Guthrie. He suggested Bob Dylan for the part. Then, Bob Dylan. Then Chris Christopherson turned down the lead roles. He did not feel he was right physically to play Woody Guthrie. That was kind of insightful of him. Yeah. Then Richard Dreyfus. A lot of actors that would turn themselves down for Richard, a role. Then Richard Dreyfus was offered the role, but he wanted too much money. Then Dustin Hoffman was offered the role of Woody Guthrie. Jeez. He was interested, but he wanted three months to rest and three months to learn to play the guitar. And the producers were unwilling to comply. Yeah. Robert De Niro was offered the role of Woody Guthrie, but he was unavailable. That would not work, I don't think, at all. Yeah, no. So David Carradine did it, and there you go. All right. What's next? Wednesday, December 8th. Oh. Do you have something for that? I do, but I'm going to go back just a little. Go back? I have to go back just a little. You can't go back. We're going forward, baby. We're going forward on this podcast. No, I'm going to go back. back. Just a touch. You're going to back that ass up? January 1st, 1880. Okay, that's a long way. We're not even... Yep. 1880s is going to be like season 25. Something. I don't know. Crazy. All right. Elmer McCurdy. Elmer McCurdy. You're going after the 1800s? 1880. This is 1976, babe. In Washington, Maine, the son of unmarried 17-year-old Sadie McCurdy. Poor Sadie. The father's identity is in doubt, and it might be Sadie's cousin, Charles Smith. Oh. Her Um, cousin got her pregnant in the 1800s? Maybe. My cousin got me pregnant in the 1800s. Her brother, George, and his wife, Helen, soon adopted Elmer, likely to save Sadie from the shame of having to raise an illegitimate child. That's kind of what you did back then. That's what you did in the 1880s. When George died of tuberculosis in 1890, the new widow, along with Sadie and Elmer, relocated to Bangor, Maine, M.A.? No, that's Massachusetts. Massachusetts? Massachusetts. Sorry. But I think Bangor is in Maine, isn't it? That's why I wanted to say Maine. It must be M-E. Maine is M-E. Okay. Anyway, who cares? Somewhere along about here, Sadie revealed the truth to young Elmer that she, not Helen, was his real mother. Oh. And she was unsure of who his biological father was. And so he thought she was his sister? Yeah. Okay. So he got upset, just like Jack Nicholson had that happen to him, too. In real life? Uh Uh-huh. And Ted Bundy. Jack Nicholson and Ted Bundy's mom. They was they sister? were raised to believe that their sis- that their mom was their sister, and then they didn't find out until they were older that it was their mom. Both those people. Really. Yep. So anyway, he was upset and disturbed by the news. He started to grow resentful and okay. become unruly and rebellious. Yeah. And then, as a teenager, became a heavy drinker. Mm-hmm. Behaviors he would continue throughout his short life. Oh boy. McCurdy eventually moved in with his grandfather and apprenticed as a plumber. Okay. He was a competent worker. He lived comfortably. Plumber butt. Until there was an economic downturn in 1898. 
He lost his job. Oh, the downturn of 1898. Yes, he lost his job, and then in August 1900, his mother died. Oh. His grandfather died the following month. That was real mother? Yes. Okay. So shortly after, he left Maine, so it is Maine. Okay. Shortly after, he left Maine and drifted about the eastern U.S. working as a plumber and a lead miner. A plumber drifter, a plumber crack drifter. He's got his butt crack out, he's drifting. And he's also a what? A pipe fitter? Lead miner. Lead miner? Lead but he couldn't hold any job for long because of his alcohol problems. So it is hard. He um, eventually made his way to Cherryvale, Kansas, where he worked as a plumber. Cherryvale, then he Kansas, went, y'all, uh, with then his he, butt crack out. In 1905, he was arrested for public intoxication. Oh, really? I, thought, I would think that would be legal in 1905. Well, if you imagine how bad it would have to be for you to be arrested for it. Must be bad. So he relocated to Webb City, Missouri, and joined Web the U.S. City, Army oh. in 1907. See, so, yeah, now back then, I think, like in the 1800s, everybody was drunk all the time because the water wasn't clean, right? Or is that, am I thinking, too early? Uh, it's I don't know. It's anyway. a good, that's a good question. Yeah. So he was posted at Fort Leavenworth as a machine gunner. Ooh. While he was there, he received some minimal training in the use of nitroglycerin for demolition purposes. Uh oh, that's not that's gonna that sounds like foreshadowing, y'all. Yes. So he was honorably discharged and met an army buddy in St. Joseph, Kansas, oh. and they were soon arrested for possessing burglary paraphernalia, burglary which included... paraphernalia. I can't wait to hear what this is, y'all. Chisels, hacksaws, funnels for nitroglycerin, gunpowder, and money sacks. Boom. Hacksaw Bush Reed, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. This, according to an article in the St. Joseph Gazette, McCurdy and a friend told the judge the tools were not intended for burglary purposes, no. but needed to work on a foot-operated machine gun they were inventing. Oh, a foot-operated machine gun? Everybody needs one of those. Because I don't want to have to use my hands to shoot up a bunch of people. Well, and you know, all the money sacks and hacksaws that you need to invent that. Money sacks and hacksaws, y'all. Right. I got hacksaws and money sacks, right, y'all. That's Sorry. Um, somewhere around March of 1911, he moved to Oklahoma, where he and three other guys decided to rob the Missouri Pacific Iron Mountain train. And this is gonna. How is this gonna take us to the 70s? We'll we'll see. All right. I'm just. I just can't believe this. So they heard the express car had about four thousand dollars in the safe. They stop the train and locate the safe. Then McCurdy employs the nitro to open the safe. Okay. The explosion completely destroyed the safe and the majority of the money as well. Oh, too much explosives. Yep. The robbers netted about $450 in silver coins, and the rest were melted and fused to the safe's blaster frame. (laughs) Holy crap. So Now, I'd like to say this is the same night as Maud was on, but television wasn't wasn't invented, invented yet, that's so right I can't so i don't know so uh september of 1911 okay they robbed the citizens bank in chautauqua kansas oh chautauqua y'all they spent several hours breaking through the bank wall with a hammer okay and mccurdy placed his nitro to open the door of the bank's outer vault oh shit the resulting blast threw the vault door through the bank's interior Holy destroying crap. it but leaving the safe inside the vault intact so then he tries to open the safe, but the charge fails to ignite. Oh, no. Then the lookout man panicked and run off. Oh, so they've blown up the thing, but they didn't even get into the safe. Right. And then the lookout man gets, he panics and he ran off. And McCurdy and his remaining accomplice get about $150 in a coin from a tray outside the safe. And then they hightail it. Oh, 150 bucks, but that was a lot yeah, back then. In the tray outside. So then they hop a train for the Kansas border later that night. All right. 
After they split up, McCurdy made his way to the ranch of Charlie Rivard, a friend who lived near Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Charlie Rivard, y'all. So there he takes up residence in a hay shed on the property. Okay. Yeah, and he drinks and he drinks and he drinks and he drinks. Drink it up, y'all. So somewhere near Okisa, Oklahoma. You know, you got to drink that much just to get through sleeping in a hay barn. Yes. So... They, uh, McCurdy and two accomplices stopped the wrong train. They, oh no, they were, um, told that it was carrying $400,000 cash royalty payment to the Osage Nation. But it wasn't by mistake. They picked the wrong train, it was a passenger train. No, this is the basis of the movie Money Train, starting Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson, probably. It could be. They got $46 from the mail clerk, a coat, the train conductor's watch, an automatic pistol, and Two demijohns of whiskey, which are kind of like barrels, small barrels. Demijohns? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to start calling all barrels demijohns. So he returned to the hay shed. All right. And decides to drink all that whiskey they just stole. All right. Why wouldn't you? You got a bunch of free whiskey. Might as well drink. So this posse comes by with three sheriffs and um, brothers Bob and Stringer Fenton and Dick Wallace. Dick Wallace. They surround the hay shed, wait for daylight, then... Um, Sheriff Bob Fenton described the event the following day in an interview. Quote, it began just about 7 o'clock. We were standing around waiting for him to come out when the first shot was fired at me. It missed me, and he then turned his attention to my brother Stringer Fenton. He shot three times at Stringer, and when my brother got undercover, he turned his attention to Dick Wallace. He kept shooting at all, all of us for about an hour. We fired it back every time we could. We did not know who killed him. We found one of the jugs of whiskey, which had taken from the train. It was about empty. He was pretty drunk when he rode up to the ranch last night. So McCurdy, age 31, was found dead of a single gunshot to the chest. Wait a minute. McCurdy died? While lying down. Yes. Okay. So his body was taken to the Johnson Funeral Home in Pawhuska, Oklahoma. Okay. The undertaker embalmed the body with an arsenic-based preservative, which was typically used in embalming in that era to preserve a body for a long period when it needed to travel or no next of kin were known. Okay. So he had no family left. Right. He shaved the corpse, dressed it in a suit, and stored it in the back of the funeral home. Just it, stored it in the funeral home? Yep, and it went unclaimed. His so body, because he had no family, so nope, they just left nothing. it in the funeral home. So Johnson... And, and they could leave it there as an example. Of, Look at our great embalming. Well, wait. Just wait. All right. So Johnson would not release the or bury the body until he'd been paid for his services. Oh, so, so he's like, yeah, I did all this, and, yeah. and I'm not doing anything with it because I need to get my money. And the body still goes unclaimed. So the family's supposed to pay for that. So then he decides he's going to recover his expenses by exhibiting McCurdy's remains. Okay. So in the times, there was more than one outlaw's body traveling with carnivals and making money from the curious and the morbid. So Johnson wait, dresses wait, wait, the corpse. Car- carnivals took dead bodies on the road with them? Yep. Huh. So Johnson dresses the corpse in, um, hold on, in street clothes, placed a rifle in the hands, and stood it up in the corner of the funeral home. Huh. And, and at Nickel of View, visitors could see the bandit who wouldn't give up, also called the mystery man of many aliases. So it can be done. You can, like, embalm a dead body and just hold it up because this is my wishes after I die. I keep telling the kids, when well, I die, pa- I want to be stuffed or embalmed and just put on the mantle. And I want you to hang Christmas decorations from my arms and stuff. The payment was placed in Elmer's open mouth. <laughs> Wait, the payment? Yeah, it was like a Nickel of View. 
and oh. people would come in to see him, if and they would pay, put, the coin put the nickel in his in mouth. His mouth. And then they'd pull it out later, pull all the coins out. I guess. So he became a popular attraction at the funeral home. And, of course, that attracted the attention of the carnival promoters. Hey, Randy, you want to go see that dead body again? I got a quarter. Johnson refused numerous offers to sell the whole embalmed, the the well-embalmed body. (laughs) Not the whole embalmed body. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you 18 cents for that dead body. Yep. At one point. I really want that dead body. Just the arm. Just give me the arm. I'll give you a nickel for the arm. How much for the arm? 50 cents. How much 50 cents give me? Can I get a pinky? A at, pinky toe. How one, much for a pinky toe? At one point, Johnson's children put roller skates on Elmer and rolled him around. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That is freaking awesome. Now, are you going to tell me that this body lasted Wait up a minute, to the just, 70s? Come on now. I Then on the 16th of October, 1916... A man identifying himself as Aver McCurdy contacted oh. Johnson, claiming to be Elmer's long-lost brother from California. Lying. He just wants a dead body. He'd already contacted the sheriff and retained a local attorney, blah, blah, blah. Really? So, so he really was a relative? He just Johnson wanted... released the body, and the two men put it on a train. But Elmer didn't have a brother. Uh, so it was a lie. So he just wanted so, to put roller skates on the dead body yeah, and ride it. Yeah, that's right. So they... Which you got to admit, that'd be pretty fun. The men were really James and Charles Patterson and James, who was the owner of the Great Patterson Carnival Show, a traveling oh, was carnival. A carnival. Okay, I got Charles that. had told him of popularity of the embalmed bandit, and the two had concocted the successful scheme to take possession of the body. That's a good idea. So McCordy's corpse would be the outlaw who would never be captured alive in Patterson's traveling carnival. So he'd go from city to until city, until 1922. Town to town. Okay, 1922. When Patterson sold his operation to Lewis Sonny. So then, All Lewis right. Sonny would use McCurdy's corpse in his traveling show, The Museum of Crime. His dead body's just going for it. And it's still all good, right? And it's not like, like stinking yeah. or and anything. it's right it's next to bone like bone. these wax figures. Oh, my gosh. So um, some people probably didn't even know it was a real body. In 1928, Elmer accompanied the Trans-American Foot Race as part of the official sideshow. Director Dwayne Esper acquired the corpse in 1933 to help promote his exploitation film, Narcotic. <laughs> it was exhibited in the lobby of theaters showing the film as a dead dope fiend whom Esper claimed had killed himself while surrounded by police after he had robbed a drugstore to support his habit. Well, that's a good use of that body. 22 years had passed since McCurdy had been embalmed, and by the time Esper was using it, the body had become well mummified. The skin had become hard and shriveled, causing the body to shrink to a much smaller perhaps more portable size. Oh, yeah. Esper would claim that the deterioration of the skin was proof of the alleged dope fiend's drug abuse. There you go. Listen, use it. Use it, baby. That's right. Lewis Sonny died in 1949, and Elmer oh. went into storage in a Los Angeles warehouse. <laughs> Sonny's son, D- Dan, lent the corpse to filmmaker David F. Friedman in 1964, okay. and it eventually did a cameo on Friedman's 1967 film, She Freak. Wait, so we can see this? This body? I guess you can, yeah. What's the movie called? She Freak. She Freak? Yeah. Like she sh- freak. Like a freak that's like a lady? She Freak, yeah. She Freak? Yep. In 1968, Dan Sonny sold the body and some wax figures to Spoonie Singh, the owner of Hollywood Wax Museum, for $10,000. No relation to Spoonie G, the rapper? Maybe. Okay. Spoonie Singh? S- S- yeah. Okay. He had actually purchased the figures for two Canadian men doing a show in Mount Rush- Rushmore. Hey, you guys want so, me to buy a dead body for you? Then there's some other. He goes all these other places. Okay. Fast forward, December 8th, 1976. Oh, you mean when uh, Don Rickles had a TV show on called CPO Sharky, where he played a uh, 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 officer in the Navy, 
and uh, basically it was just Don Rickles doing one-liner insults uh, with everybody. That sounds fabulous. And actually that day, uh, this episode uh, was an episode where a, a Japanese soldier gets upset because Don Rickles is racist mm-hmm. and says a bunch of racist things to him. Um, yeah. Because he's using his insult comedy. And he actually says, well, tell him to stop being a Jap. He actually says oh, that geez. in the show. Yeah. Great. And I was like, what the hell? Like, I was watching. I was just like, oh, holy shit. Yeah. This is really terribly really offensive. But at the end, um, the the Japanese soldier realizes, oh, I'm being too sensitive. He really likes me. And he's just make, cause he makes fun of everybody, everybody's chops. Oh, but it was okay. like, really, it's really racist. Not just um, a little. No, it's yeah, it's really, it's really bad. Um, but that was a show. It was just like Don Rickles. And the whole show was just Don Rickles one-liner oh, jokes. That could, that could like get tiresome. Yeah, it was just terrible. It's on YouTube. I think the whole okay. season is on there. Uh, CPO Sharky. All right. So December 8th, there was a production crew from the television show The Six Million Dollar Man filming scenes for the Carnival of Spies episode. Okay. Six Million Dollar Man, popular at, show that year. Mm-hmm. At The Pike, which was a, um amusement zone in Long Beach, California. During the shoot, inside the Laugh in the Dark, a prop man making adjustments to the set moved what appeared to be a wax mannequin that had been painted several times with phosphorus paint and suspended from the ceiling by a noose around its neck. Uh. Shaking the hanging figure by the arm in an attempt to loosen the noose, the prop man was startled when the lower portion of the man's arm broke off and hit the floor, oh, no. revealing human bone and muscle tissue. Ah, gross. <laughs> the police took the mummified corpse to the Los Angeles coroner's office. Elmer McCurdy, y'all. Dr. Joseph Choi's autopsy determined the body was that of a human male who had died of a gunshot wound to the chest and had severe dehydration. Oh, <laughs> bet. <laughs> I mean, you think? Yeah. He's really drunk all the time. Well, not only that, he's mummified of course he's dehydrated well i think he he's saying he died of that and, and severe dehydration right let's hope so let's yeah. hope he's not talking about the body right now yeah, of course it is now. waiting in weighing in at approximately 50 pounds with a height of 63 inches the body completely petrified was covered in wax and several oh. layers of phosphorus paint gross while some hair was still visible on the sides and back of the head the ears big toes and fingers were missing oh. And the incisions from the original autopsy and embalming were noted, and tissue testing revealed the presence of arsenic, oh, a, compo- yeah. a component of embalming fluid until the late 1920s. I think they put it in first. Yeah. Other tests showed tuberculosis in the lungs. Bunions and scars were documented, but only later determined oh. to match those McCurdy was known to have had. Oh, McCurdy had bunions? Poor guy. The bullet that killed him was not found, likely removed during the original autopsy. A gas check from the bullet was discovered. They were, they were in use from 1905 to about 1940. However, although the arsenic and the gas check were helping to build a time frame for the body, as yet they had no name. What's the matter? What are you doing? Sorry, okay, go ahead. Then during the removal of the mandible for dental analysis, the mummy was found to have in its mouth a 1924 penny yeah. and <laughs> ticket stubs to yeah. the sideshow <laughs> in Lois Sunny's Museum of Crime. Yes. Investigators contacted Dan Sonny, who identified the body as that of Elmer McCurdy. That's Elmer McCurdy, y'all. There he is. So, Dr. Clyde Snow, a forensic anthropologist, was brought in to confirm the verbal identification. Uh, His x-rays of the mummy's skull were properly scaled and then placed over a photo of McCurdy's head taken at the time of his death. So, that showed that it was him. Matched up. Which is, it's crazy that they can do that. Yeah. 
The public's interest in such tales as this is always high, and the story was better than most. Within days, the torturous trail followed by this Oklahoma would-be outlaw had made the newspapers and radio and television nationwide. As officials waited to see if any living relatives would come forward, several funeral homes offered to bury Elmer at no cost. All such offers were refused. So he eventually, on April 22, 1977... Oh, you mean the same day that uh, Nashville 99 was on? It was a show featuring Claude Atkins as Metro Nashville Police Lieutenant and Jerry Reed as a sidekick. The show featuring many country music personalities and a shot on location at various downtown Nashville sites, as well as other locations, including Opryland. It sounds awful. It's like Chips or Hawaii Five O, but in Nashville and with country singers. So the Boot Hill section of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma saw the arrival of a funeral procession burying the body of Elmer McCurdy. Graveside services were attended by perhaps 300 people as McCurdy was buried next to Bill Doolin, a notorious Oklahoma outlaw who had also fallen to gunfire. Oh. McCurdy's casket got two feet of concrete poured over it to ensure that some enterprising impresario did not return Elmer to the carnival circuit. <laughs> a precaution taken previously with Jesse James, Mr. Abraham Lincoln, and others. Oh. So there, in the peace and solitude of Summit View, the story of the mundane life of Elmer McCurdy rests. Oh. Well, that was Elmer McCurdy, y'all. It was pretty That's sweet. That's a weird story. That's really weird that that happened to some guy's dead body. I know. Yeah, they should do that with all dead bodies. I think so. You know, make use of them, you know? No, why not? Let them be what you put your money in. We're not doing anything else with it. All they're doing is filling up the earth, like, you know... When yeah, the, just prop them up around. Yeah, just have them everywhere as decorations yeah. and stuff. Hang your Christmas lights from them. Why not? You know, That's scare right. off the have birds. Grandma, have Meemaw in the living room. Yeah, Meemaw's hot. All right, what's next? Tuesday, December 14th, 1976. The mm -hmm. number, th the third most popular show that year was MASH. Uh, Colonel, on that episode, Colonel Potter per, uh, permits a Korean exorcism. Uh, to save to save the life Boy, of an elderly local. That's 1970s, right? Yeah. All over the place. Yeah, yeah they had it. How, how do we get an exorcism on MASH? Yeah. Like, exorcisms are big. We got to do something with this exorcism craze. It's yeah. sweeping the nation. And then Friday, December 17th, uh, the number three uh, top grossing movie comes out. And this has been remade 100 million times. And this is the... Second remake, I believe, already. A Star is Born. Oh, yeah. This one with Chris Christopherson and Barbara, Barbara Streisand and Gary Busey. That's right. Uh, a has-been rock star falls in love with a young up-and-coming songstress. Uh, why you would cast Barbara Streisand, uh, I have no idea. Well, why you awful. would cast Lady Gaga, it, up young and up-and-coming. Oh, Lady Gaga rules. Yeah, but she's I not young she and up-and-coming. Pop 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 poker face pop 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 poker All face. Right. Yeah, but she's playing somebody who's young and up up and coming. But she's not young and up and coming. Uh, Chris Christopherson did not get along with the director. Uh, no. According to Rare. Chris, Frank Pearson himself, a World War II veteran, looked down on Christopherson for being in the army but not going to war in Vietnam. Christopherson later said, "I was too drunk to give a shit." Christopherson said, "Filming with Streisand is an experience which may have cured me of the movies." Wow. Uh, director so Frank, he yeah, he hated, yeah. Like he I'm not it. doing a movie ever again. No. Frank Pearson was so angered by his experience working with Barbara Streisand on this film that Who? he, the, the director oh, Frank Pearson, yeah, uh, he was so angered by working with Barbara Streisand that he wrote a first-person account published in both New York 
and New West magazines detailed what a horrible experience it had been. Really? Yeah, Pearson portrayed his star as egocentric, manipulative, and controlling. The article was published she must be a nightmare. just prior to the film's release in December 76, and Streisand and Pearson have never worked together again. Have you ever had her come to your theater? No, 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 no. As Tom McAllister would say, she would never stoop so low as to come to oh North Carolina. God. Really? She would not tour. Oh, okay. Like she only... It's an interesting... Yeah, he's seen her like seven times, but he had to go to New like York sh- every New York. time. Like oh, she'll really? only play in New York and L.A. maybe. Yeah, she would never come to North Carolina. What were you thinking? She would never stoop so low. Jeez. That's what he says. Uh, she insisted, Barbara Streisand insisted that she wanted Elvis Presley to play the part of John Norman Howard. Uh, she even went to Vegas to see Elvis after one of his performances in seventy. This was when he was sweaty and fat. And talked to him directly to convince him to play the part. Elvis wanted to do it, but the Colonel Tom Parker, his yeah. manager, yeah. was angry that Babs didn't come to him first. Oh. So he told the producers if they wanted Elvis, his name had to be at the top of the movie poster above Barbara's name. And Barbara was like, fuck that, because I'm Babs. Yeah. Um, and he also asked for a bunch of money. And, and Elvis hadn't been in a movie since 1969, and nobody knew what he could do at the box office because of all that. So yeah. he didn't end up making the movie. Um, probably just as well. Yeah, probably would have been bad. Yep. Because um, he would have died on the toilet. Mm-hmm. Right? And then Friday, that same day, that same day that came out, also the number six top-grossing movie came out, King Kong. Oh, that's a good one. And Jessica Lange. This was Jessica Lange's film debut. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. She's gorgeous in it. Did you know that Meryl Streep auditioned for the lead role? Oh, she did? Yep. And producer Dino De Laurentiis mm-hmm. commented to his son in Italian during her audition, thinking she didn't know speak the language. Mm-hmm. He said, she's ugly. Why did you bring me this thing? Oh, and he, she could speak the language? He was shocked when Streep replied to the insult in fluent Italian. Oh, poor thing. Yep. Um, the the gorilla's arms were giant hydraulic arms, and the hands were six feet across, and the arms weighed 1,650 pounds. Oh, my God. Each. You'd think they could have made them a little hot, more hollow. Yeah, they weren't ready until shooting was well underway when they were finally built. Dino was invited to the set to witness a test. He walked into the studio and a giant arm extended in his direction. Then the middle finger slowly uncurled and extended oh, itself. Oh, funny. And he laughed. And, uh, uh, and That's crazy. So Jessica Lange. And Lang, then it was stuck like that for a week. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, shit, we can't get it off. Yeah, that's funny. And Jessica Lang probably had to do those sh- all the shoots of her in the thing's hand. She probably had to do them all together because be of. crazy. That would have been awful. Who knows, yeah. All right. Anything else? Friday, December 24th, 1976, the number five top grossing movie came out. Okay. In Search of Noah's Ark. Mm, This was an investigation into the theory that Mount Ararat in Turkey is the final resting place of Noah's Ark. Stars Brad (gasps) Crandall, Vern Adix, Melvin Cook. And despite the claims by the host, no evidence has been found to confirm the discovery of Noah's Ark. People are so stupid. This was the expedition to find Noah's Ark. Uh, um, Noah's Ark's not real. Yeah, I know. People I know. are so stupid. Yeah. Yeah, they really think it was real. There's a lot of time and money spent looking for it. And then on Christmas Day. Yeah. Uh, Wait, I've got Christmas toys. Yeah, Stretch Armstrong. 
Well, that's one of mine. It was released. Yes. This is the year Stretch, Stretch Armstrong. Armstrong. That's all we got to do. Kenner Stretch Armstrong, the rubbery blonde muscle man in the black Speedo, pumped full of corn syrup, the latex skin stud hit toy stores in the bicentennial. The craze had died by the end of the decade, though his counterpart, Stretch Monster, came out in 1978. Yeah, so why... I don't get why that's such a big deal, Stretch Armstrong. Why did that get such a craze? Like, there's nothing you can do with it except stretch, stretch it. That's it. it. You just stretch it, and then you're done. Is it's a sensory toy? And then you don't play with it. Any- yeah, yeah, I guess it is. Um, who had the power to outsell Barbie in '76, honey? Not Stretch Armstrong. No, Super Diva Cher. What? Mago's posable long-haired Cher was the best-selling doll of that year. Not Sunny? Fashion designer Bob Mackey created the toy's wardrobe. Bob Mackey. Sun, Sunburn Sunny was sold separately. Oh, so you could get Sunny. Yeah, you could. And he was shorter? And he was, was he sunburned. Short? He was sunburned? Yeah. What? Um, there was really... I want that action figure. I want that. The Bionic Woman made her television debut at the start of the year, and soon toy stores were filled with Bionic Woman everything. There was a doll, which I had. You had the Bionic Woman doll? Yes, complete with outfits like denim, pantsuits, and tennis apparel, a dome house, a Bionic Beauty and Repair Station, and this nifty wrist radio. What better way to listen to one-hit wonders like Starland Vocal Band? And it really it really worked? Yeah, but it, really it was, I mean, it played probably three songs that that were in the thing. You know, it's not like it was a radio, I don't think. Oh, okay. I, I don't think. I can't find Sunburn Sunny doll. Try Sunny and share Barbie dolls. See if that. Then there was Muhammad Ali boxing ring set. Rock'em Sock'em robots met Rope-A-Dope with the greatest launch when the greatest launched his boxing ring play set. Rock'em Sock'em robots. As the fine print stated, figures were not included. Those awesome little Ali's and Joe Frazier's would cost you more than seventeen ninety nine retail price for the ring. There you go. So you could buy the ring, but not the dolls. Yeah, Think about that. Then there was the oh, green was machine. Oh. It was sunburned. Sorry, I'm yep. the actual year sunburned. Shiny. Okay. Go uh, ahead, green machine. The green machine. Big the wheels and hot cycles were ubiquitous, but the green machine was a rare and cherished beast. Originally sold by Marks and now manufactured by Huffy, this sweet, low-slung tight trike swerved with stick steering on the rear wheels. Riding one felt like operating a futuristic cycle. Huh. I don't remember that at all. I've never seen that before. It was a type of big wheel. Yep. Then there was Now Look Ken. Ken's stiff blonde locks got a very up the a very of the era upgrade with this brunette dry look. That blowout perfectly matched his camel colored leisure suit. Wait, what is it? It's a Ken doll. What's it called? New, now Look Ken. Oh, Now Look. Okay. Then there was Star Trek Phaser Battle Game. Hmm. Though the series was a decade old, and though a big screen return was still a few years off, Star Trek continued to sell, and for quite a cost. The asking the asking price of forty nine eighty eight, which was about two hundred dollars in today's cash, oh. was rather steep for zapping red silhouettes of Klingon ships. The gameplay was not unlike the field vision tests at your optometrist. Huh, I remember that. Um, Snoopy Scooter Shooter. Evil Knievel was cool, and his stunt bike was the hot toy of the early 70s, but did the Daredevil have a cute bird as, as his co-pilot? Nope. After launching a few Snoopies off the ramp, you were probably hungry for a Snoopy snow cone from the Snoopy snow cone machine. <laughs> Though that toy was not introduced until 1979. Wait a minute. What are you looking for? Snoopy scooter shooter. Oh, yeah, okay, I didn't have that. You didn't have it? No, but I... Yeah, no. I, I had a Hot Wheels Snoopy 
with a it was like a little Hot Wheel that had Snoopy's head sticking out of it. Then there was this one. Listen to this. J.J. Arms. Now, here is a hard one to explain to younger generations. J.J. Arms was and still is a real-life private detective with metal hooks for hands. <laughs> the amputee appeared on television and earned his own toy line. The 70s yeah. were wonderfully eclectic. What? <laughs> that guy is crazy. And it was a doll. Yeah, it was a doll, but it's based on a show with a real live show. Yeah. A guy with a gun. He's got like metal hooks for our hands. Then there was Fairchild Channel F. Have you ever heard of this? No. Before Nintendo, before Atari, before them all, there was Fairchild's Channel F video entertainment system. This home gaming console was the first cartridge based system offered to the American public. When Atari launched the following year, Fairchild renamed its machine. In 1976, this arcade would set you back $149 with video carts running an extra 1995. Huh, it looks just like an Atari. It's kind of, but dropping nearly a grand for some virtual backgammon seems rather insane today. And then the last one, the huh. the Walton's Dollhouse. <laughs> oh gosh, that had to be stupid. As the that. Walton's Dollhouse. Pretend you're a member of the Waltons. Recreate stories or make up your own. Includes Walton's family. Pickup truck, rocker, seesaw, and porch swing. I want grandpa. <laughs> oh, but they weren't actual dolls. They were just like stand ups, like board games. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I don't that's think so. they were funny. Like, well, so those were the not. toys of 1976, as fabulous as I they are. They were. I don't know. The Walton's Farmhouse. So I guess they were. I don't know. Some of them were. I don't know. The Walton's Farmhouse. Jeez. It was pretty funny. God, what a terrible show the Walton's was. Yep. That's true. Is anyway, that everything? Yeah, that's all I got. That's all I got, babe. That was a pretty I'm good spent. bunch of stuff. Um, some interesting tidbits. Hopefully the tidbits. listeners like it. Hopefully the listeners were enthralled and Intrigued. didn't turn it off or fall asleep at the wheel. Titillated. Hopefully they didn't fall asleep at the wheel. They were titillated. Do you think we get sued for being boring enough where somebody falls asleep at the wheel? And no. Like, oh, they were listening to the American Timeline. Let's sue those bastards. I don't think anybody's falling asleep that for this fabulous No, because this is an exciting podcast. Yeah. Are you kidding? Fritz Keebler, yo. All right. Oh shit, so, Matt Truman's thank about you to for oh, listening. there's the listen to that beat. Listen to that Matt Truman beat, y'all. Please rate, review, subscribe. Yeah, do that. Give us tell your give friends. Us stuff. Tell everybody to listen to it. And just bug um, them. Shove them. Come back listen and listen again. Thank yeah, baby. you. Get out of here, Chuck. Chuck, get out. Get out of here, Chuck. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.